0: Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. It's my great honor to have as my conversation partner today, Paul Caminiti. Paul is the co-founder of the Institute for Bible Reading and has an amazing resource that he and his team have been working on that I'm going to ask him to share about in a moment. But Paul, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, I'm delighted. Thanks, Steve.
0: So, Paul, what is the Institute for Bible Reading and, and, and how did that come to be? What, what's the backstory there?
1: Yeah, the short answer is that we're um, an action oriented think tank that's working to change the way the world reads the Bible. And uh, the, the background of that, uh, we were, we were co founded by a number of us who have spent a good chunk of our careers in uh, the Bible publishing industry. And actually, uh, in in those roles began to face something of a crisis of conscience about what we were doing with the Bible. So I was at Zondervan um, for about a decade in the early 2000s, and we had this wildly successful publishing strategy of publishing, you know, one niche Bible after another. And we sold about 7 million Bibles, you know, every single year. And it was basically a brand extension strategy. So you would publish the, uh, the women's study Bible, and then you would tweak the notes, and it would become the women's devotional Bible, and you tweak them again, and it would become the busy mom's devotional Bible. And of course, Walmart and Sam's Club and Costco, you know, ate, ate it all up. But in my role, I began to struggle with this unsettling question, was this really what the Spirit had in mind when gifting us with the scriptures? And that led me to commission a survey of people who purchased our study Bibles and our devotional Bibles, and we learned to our chagrin that people were, for the most part, reading our notes, reading the devotionals, reading the prayers. You know, we did a Bible for teens, and so they would read the dating tips, but they weren't reading the text. And that led to a whole other wave of, of research and kind of the, the, the short version that the state of the Bible today could be described as two divergent trend lines, and the one trend line is access to the Bible, and we're we're doing remarkably there in North America. So, uh, a couple of years ago, and the study showed that uh, the average household in North America—not the Christian household, but average household in North America—owns 4.5 Bibles, and we still sell in North America 25 million Bibles every single year, which means that, you know, the Bible is not only the best-selling book of all times, it's the best-selling book, you know, every single year. But the other part of that trend line um, is is the Bible reading trend line, and it's in freefall. Um, George Gallup began studying Bible reading trends in the mid-1980s, And we were able to extrapolate some of his numbers. And I still remember we were in the Bible bunker, which was kind of our dedicated room for trying to come to terms with some of these things. And somebody said, I I just extrapolated those numbers. And it means that since 1985, we've been losing on average um, 700 Bible readers every single day. And the consultant that was in our room, he said, hey, guys, don't don't let's stop right now. It, if, if we were any other company, if we were P.F. Chang's and found out that 700 people a day said, I think I've had my, you know, my last Chinese meal, you know, everybody would be, you know, on high alert, the board would be demanding answers, etc., And just to give a quick update on that, the Barna Group just came out with a recent study saying that we lost in North America an additional 26 million regular Bible readers during COVID.
0: To what do you attribute that, Paul? Some anecdotal evidence was saying, hey, people have free time. They'd always known that Bible reading was a value. And now that they're homebound and they've got 4.5 Bibles lying around, Bible reading could and should and might go up. You're saying that's not the case
1: people in the industry were kind of gobsmacked by that, because uh, after 9-11, there was a a major spike in Bible reading, and this had just the opposite effect. You know, I'm not a sociologist, so I'm not sure that could completely unwrap all that, but I I do feel, Steve, like I have, like we have some bigger answers to why people um, are giving up on the Bible, and so Following, you know, kind of these unbelievable data points that we, we uncovered about the Bible, which led us to this conclusion that we are in the middle of a silent crisis of Bible disengagement. Christian sociologists, some of them are saying we, we have now entered into what we would call an era of Bibleless Christianity. I had a, the unique opportunity, along with some, some other uh, colleagues for about two years to travel around the country to talk to uh, Christian thought leaders, Christian scholars, um, some behavioral psychologists. And we asked that question, why is it that when the Bible is ubiquitous and and Bible reading is, is in such bad shape? And when we say ubiquitous, I mean, you can get it in any form, right? You can get fantastic audio Bibles that have the sound effects of major motion pictures, celebrity voices, and, you know, we have Bibles that are available through et cetera, etc., etc. None of that is moving the needle. In fact, the, the needle is going in in the opposite direction. After about two years, we developed a point of view about this, and we went public with it, and uh, our, our kind of leading statement was that we believed that the modern church had inadvertently developed some bad habits about how we think of the Bible and how we publish the Bible and, and how we use the Bible. And then we went into, you know, some detail, and I'll, I'll do this real quickly, but I think, uh, I think the listeners might be interested in this. So the, the first barrier to stellar Bible reading is that we read the Bible in fragments, and I was having lunch one day with the journalist, Philip Yancey, and we were talking about that. And Philip stopped me and he said, Paul, you're soft pedaling it. He said, here's the reality. He said, the modern church created an entire culture around Bible McNuggets and assumed, assumed they were, were nutritious. And I, I'm still sobered by that lunch and by that statement. Uh, you know, we created a culture. And, you know, I what was it? Uh, who is the, the business guru? Peter Drucker, I think, who said sure. that cult, culture eats strategy uh, for yeah. breakfast every morning. Sure. We didn't just create a strategy around fragments. We created a culture, you know, around fragments. And then we had an aha moment in the midst of all of that. Um, as again, we're, we're interviewing scholars and Christian thought leaders. And that is that this fragmented reading did not um, happen in a vacuum, that it is a direct result of the fragmentation of the Bible text itself. And so that led us to doing um, you know, some historical study on the modern Bible. And this stuff is, by the way, well known to theologians and so forth. It's just never really been broadcasted. But here's the story. Um, you know, the, up until the 13th century, the Bible was a clean text. And in the 13th century, um, Stephen Langdon, Archbishop of Canterbury, writing prolifically uh, writing Old Testament commentaries, what um, wasn't able to get people to track with him. And so he came up with a new structural invention called chapter, chapter breaks. And but the really massive structural change for the Bibles didn't happen until the 16th century uh, when Robert Estienne, a French classical scholar, had the bright idea that we should have a concordance for the Bible. And he immediately knew then that the Bible would need need many, many more markers. And this man, single-handedly, is the person who instituted the structural change of adding verse numbers um, to the Bible. It's really quite a fascinating story. I won't get into it, but he was a Huguenot, and so he was on the run. And a lot of his work, which was done very quickly in less than a year, happened on horseback, be bouncing around and and checking off, I think we need a break, you know, we need a break here. This innovation for the Bible would radically change the Bible's form, radically change the way we think of the Bible, radically change the way that we talk about the Bible, and that we, the way that we engage the Bible. And so, you know, overnight, um, a foreign paratext was layered over the Bible, and We like to say, and I, I, you know, people say, well, that's a little radical, but this new form was something alien to the Bible. In, you know, biological terms, it was an exoskeleton, a skeleton outside the body. And, you know, as as one person kind of snarkily put it, uh, we took God's great epic story and turned it into, you know, 30,000 scripturettes. When we think about why do people read the Bible in fragments? Well, because we offer it to them in fragments. And the the way that they're visible to us, uh, even especially in the early days, um, you know, each verse was actually treated like a separate paragraph. Like these are standalone statements or standalone aphorisms that you can just take them by themselves, and you can, you know, create your own own meaning around them, and of course, the perfect storm was that if at this same time when the verse numbers were added, was when the Gutenberg press uh, came came into being, and so now people could actually have their own Bible, and when they opened them up, there they were with chapters and verses kind of dominating the the Bible uh, the Bible landscape and we've had that now for for like five five hundred years so uh, let me just give you the last two quickly I sure. spent a lot of time on the Bible's uh, we read the Bible in fragments the second barrier is that we read the Bible outside of its historical context which is also directly related to the Bible's uh, fragmented form up until that time, the Bible's primary unit of engagement was was a book. And so people would engage the Bible, you know, books at a time. And again, overnight, that primary unit of engagement became the verse and at that point, context, you know, took a huge hit so that for most people today, as one pastor said to me, uh, for my congregation, the Bible is a, is a bag of beads without a string. And so they know the sayings of the Bible. Um, uh, a devout Christian knows about 13 by heart, but they don't know the big epic story of the Bible. So they, they, they climb individual trees. They eat the fruit of individual trees, but very few have taken a romp through the, uh, through the big majestic forest. Then the last barrier to good Bible reading is that we read the Bible in isolation. So as we studied and as we worked on this, it became increasingly clear to us that the Bible in its design um, is a communal transformation book. And in the modern era, it's become, you know, a solo sport. And, you know, our lexicon tells us so. We have our private devotions. We have our quiet time, none of which we should give up. But it all should be preparatory for a new practice within the church that we're not reading alone, but that we come together together and that this is foundational to the life of the church that you have groups of people that are reading literally on the same page and then they gather together regularly to talk about what they've been reading and if you want to put you know a dollop of of cream you know on the cake then the, the senior leaders of the church preach on the same things that people are reading throughout the week and we have hundreds of churches now across the world that are doing that, the results
0: are fairly remarkable. Paul, that's incredible. As you were talking, I was thinking about just my own church experience and and realized that when, when I was growing up in the church around the same time, the 80s and the 90s, very little of the preaching that I was exposed to, and I know this is just indicative of my tradition, this isn't true of everybody, was more topical as opposed to expositional preaching. And I'm not saying that there's no place for topical preaching, but if you hear a 35-minute message and there's one verse, then it can kind of compound this fragmentation that you've been talking about to be that whole congregations can can cherry pick a verse and get like maybe a, a thought or a helpful idea. But if that but if that verse is stripped of its broader biblical context or literary context or historical context it's it's not ultimately doing anybody any favors and the the unintended consequence is that to your point we might have a a smaller more limited and very sterile reading of the text is is that fair
1: that's more than fair i mean i would i would put it this way you use the term cherry picking and we use the same the same term uh we, we like to talk about verse jacking. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and again, so oftentimes, the speaker has a point of view already that they want to get across, and then they begin searching the text, right. you know, for something that would, would support that. Um, and, and, and by the way, I mean, I, w- we are not here to be critical of, of pastors and, and preachers you know what 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 a challenge they have in front of them these days but the vision that has sprung from this and again is being implemented now really is kind of a transformational approach to preaching where the the preacher becomes less of the sage from the stage and more of the guide on the side yeah. and so when he or she gets up to speak to their congregation and they look out over their congregation they know that that you know, a good portion of their congregation have already read the 30 or 40 pages that uh, he or she are going to preach from uh, that day. And that if the small group leaders have been properly coached, they've been sending questions that arise out of the group um, for, for, the, for the pastor to address those things. And I get to visit some of these churches. And oftentimes I go in, you know, uh, undercover and I'll stand in the foyer or I'll sit in my pew. And it's amazing, Steve, to hear people not talking about, you know, the Lions game later on this afternoon or whatever your, your pro team is. But there's, they're literally standing around in groups talking about what they've read that week. Mm-hmm. And it's a game changer
0: for as much as is alarming and cause for concern. You're, you're seeing glimmers of hope to t- talk, talk to our listeners about why you're optimistic for how the tide might be able to turn when it comes to scripture reading and scripture engagement.
1: Yeah. Well, let, let me, let me give you something that's research-based and then let me give you something that's experiential um, research-based um, there was a study done about five years ago now that w- with 80,000 churchgoers. And one of the questions that was asked was, what do you need most from your church? And it was a multiple choice. There were about 12 different choices, better preaching, better band, better programming for kids, in-house amenities like coffee shops, you know, the usual suspects. But nine out of 10, people checked a little box that said this, help me understand the Bible in depth. Hmm. It was shocking. And as I get a chance to travel around the country and speak to pastors, one of the things that I say to them, the people have spoken. <laughs> this this, this survey, this study, this uh, is something that we should all, all pay attention to. The follow-up yeah. question was, is your church helping you do that? And only 19% said yes. So one out of five said yes, which is something that should be amazingly challenging and exciting for, for the pastor. Exciting because that gap that's there, nine out of 10 says, this is what I want. Only one out of 10 says our church is helping us. That gap is freighted with energy and churches that can figure out how to step into that gap in some probably new way are going to be able to harness that energy in powerful ways. And we live in that world and we see it happening, you know, all all of the time. It's not going to be by the pastor standing up, you know, in January and saying, look, every year, you know, we give you guys a challenge to read through the Bible this year. And we have a better reading plan than we've ever had before. And um, you know, go go for it this year. That that that's a, a strategy that has failed spectacularly. So there's going to need to be a new strategy, and I'll, I'll talk about that in just, um, in just a minute. That's from a research standpoint. Um, it tells us that we have people that are sitting in our pews, and I think they're saying that we have finally come to the place where we realize that the major problems that we're facing in our families, in our society, in our church, are not going to be solved by better programming. It's not going to be, you know, another interest group, you know, the motorcycle club from the church or the yoga club, uh, the softball team, the daddy-daughter dances. All of those things may be good. Those may all be touch points, but those ultimately aren't going to save us. And they they intuitively sense that, that we have been giving the scriptures this amazing gift from the Spirit. We've been giving it a lick and a promise. And that if we're ever going to be saved, and I, I don't mean saved to go to heaven someday, but saved in this life, saved to a life of God-honoring usefulness, then it's going to take a different kind of interaction with the scripture. So that's what I would say, Steve, you know, on the research side that, that I think is hopeful and positive. Uh, on the pragmatic side, we created. And experience. We've actually created several experiences now, but our latest one um, is an experience that's kind of a foil then to reading in fragments, reading outside of context and reading in isolation. And uh, it's called Immerse, the Bible reading experience. And uh, it's been out in the market now for, for about five years. Do we have time for me to give you just a quick? Um, yeah, please. You can go to, you know, immersebible.com. Our partner, uh, our publishing partner is Tyndale. It's published in the New Living Translation, which is, of all the major translations, the easiest Bible to to read. But it comes in six volumes. And our primary goal wasn't portability, although you get that. But six volumes allows uh, a kind of paper and a kind of the scientific approach to better reading, font size. Turning, letting, all of those things that make it easier for us to read, you get that in six volumes. But there are six natural divisions, right, within the text. So you have what we have, what we call beginnings, which is the Pentateuch, and then the second section, what theologians call the former prophets, so Joshua through kings, then you have the poets, you have the prophets, you have chronicles, which were the books written to Israel after they returned from the Babylonian exile, and then our New Testament we call, you know, Messiah. But what this does is that it really unveils the different literary genres, which are in the Bible, which are oftentimes overlooked. And so people begin to learn to read Hebrew poetry, which is an amazing uh, invention, uh, very different than our poetry, you know, of today. And then we removed the chapters and the verses, you know, you saw that coming. Mm-hmm. We gave the Bible an unmakeover. We evened out the speed bumps on the Bible's, uh, Superhighway, and I won't go into all of it, but I have testimonies from teenagers and from prisoners saying, uh, "I've read the Bible for years, and you know when I would close it, I'd go on to something else. For the first time, I'm reading the Bible, and when I close the cover, I continue to think about it." Um, so that's having a, a tremendous impact uh, in the place of chapters and verses. And this took four years. We went through the text and identified natural literary breaks. So I won't go into a lot of detail that way, but you know, Matthew isn't 28 chapters, it's five major teachings of Jesus, each each which ends with some variation of the phrase and after Jesus had said these things. So when you begin to read Matthew, you know, in light of those natural literary breaks, and by the way, probably people in that day said, hmm, five teachings of Jesus, we have five books of Moses, Maybe this guy is claiming that he's the new Moses. And then then we put books in a better historic order, which is really another huge, huge change. And again, this is the kind of information that most of us are unaware of. And I was unaware of it for most of my years, frankly, as a pastor. Um, I I, I knew it. I probably heard it in a class, but it was just kind of like water off of a duck's back. So You'll see throughout that we changed the order. By the way, the order was never solidified until the printing press. Up until the printing press, there were 47 different variations of the order. And so the printing press forced a standardization, and and frankly, it wasn't a very good one. So in the New Testament, for example, Paul's books, Paul's letters, all bunched together, um, presented from the longest to the shortest. Romans is the longest. First Corinthians is the second longest, so no attempt to write them, you know, put them in a better historical order, so we built the New Testament around the four gospel pillars, so we started with Luke and Acts, volume one, volume two of Luke's historic treatise, arguably should have been been left together, one-fourth of the New Testament, but Luke was a traveling companion of Paul, and so then it's Paul's books in a better historic order. The second module is the Gospel of Mark paired with Peter's letters, because Mark was a disciple of Peter. And then the third grouping is Matthew, along with the other two books that were written primarily to a Hebrew audience. So Matthew, Hebrews, and James. And then the book of John paired with John's letters and kept off by Revelation. But this makes a difference, And I love the stories that flow in that that show us that this isn't just window dressing or us being clever. We've tried very hard not to be clever in putting this together. But recently we got a story from a group where there was a young gal, I think she was a college student, that was invited to come to an immersed book club. She was interested. And the leader of the group kind of described her as a pre-lever. but she, she, she came and she read along with everybody else. Um, but about the second week, so they'd read Luke and Acts, and they'd gotten into some of Paul's letters. And she, she kind of gingerly raised her hand. And she said, guys, this is all new to me. Um, and everybody and everything is new to me. But she says, this Apostle Paul guy, um, I have to tell you, I'm not much of a fan. He seems a little bit like a bully to me. And the, the group leader said it was one of the most phenomenal conversations that we'd ever had you know, around the, ne- the text. Several weeks later, when they finished reading, um, she raised her hand again and said, I said that I wasn't a fan of Paul, but I have to tell you, I liked him better in the end. He seemed to soften. Mm. Well, you only see that when you're reading Paul's letters in a better historic uh, order. I'm bullish on where we could go with the Bible based on the research and based on our experience all over North America and now increasingly around the world across denominational lines. So Southern Baptists are doing this. Anglicans are doing this. Episcopalians are doing this. Young people are doing it in Christian schools. It's being done in prisons. Really kind of catching on in the UK right now in a post-Christian era. And I think part of that too is that that we not only changed the Bible's hardware, we, we did change the software too. And so we made a hard pivot from a Bible study model to a book club model. So we would say uh, that the average Bible study this is really a generalization because there's some phenomenal Bible studies that are out there, but many of them are, are really regurgitation studies, just asking you to parrot back something that you saw in the text. And in our situation, we ask four open-ended questions. You know, we've tested down through the years, and these questions just break the conversation open. So when you begin, when your group sits down, you have a group host. They're not the Bible study leader. They're the group host. Uh, They may, in some situations, have some formal Bible training, or they may be veteran Bible readers. In some situations, they're not. They get the group started. They pray. People have come to the group. They've done their reading. Uh, We we have an eight-week reading plan and a 16-week reading plan for each of the modules. And then the, the first question is, what stood out to you this week? And it just breaks the conversation open. And the genius of open-ended questions, of course, are there's no wrong answers. Now, the, the person who saw something may have done injustice to it, or they may have you know, massacred the meaning, but then there's the group there, right? For them to be able to talk those things through. And then, you know, the second question is, was there something that confused you or troubled you? And that question um, opens up new VISTAs, of conversation. And so um, all all of this together, we're seeing churches that are having revival-like experiences, their stewardship is improved, there are more baptisms, they have people that are coming, you know, to these groups from their neighborhoods that would never darken the doors of a church. We're seeing revival in pastors. I mean, I remember interviewing a pastor a while back who said, I've carried a, little, a dark secret all my life. I don't really like reading the Bible. I study to preach, but in terms of sitting down and reading the Bible, this pastor said for the first time in my life, I'm, I'm into the scriptures and the scriptures are into me. And I feel scriptural vitality in my soul, you know, in a way that I haven't. And, and uh, the, the cognitive dissonance is gone.
0: That's great. Well, Paul, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. For people who want to take a next step, if they're curious about Immerse, or they want to learn more about the Institute, where where should they go to get those questions answered?
1: For the Institute, instituteforbiblereading.org. We know that's a mouthful. And then if you want to hear specifically about Immerse, you can go to immersebible.com. And you know, on each of those sites, there's stories. Uh, you know, this is stuff that that can be purchased anywhere. Uh, we we did have, and this will sound like bragging, probably because it is. But uh, um, in in, in uh, this year, in 2022, uh, Immerse won the Gold Medallion Book of the Year Award, uh, and we're excited for that primarily because of the publicity because Immerse Mm -hmm. is really kind of still in a corner in some ways. But again, you can buy it on Amazon or Tyndale or wherever, you know, books and Bibles are sold.
0: Great. Paul, well, thank you for the, you, you sent me a set earlier this week and I'm looking forward to diving in. I've been a student of scripture for a long time, but just even, even that anecdote that you told about the young woman watching Paul's tone evolve as she read his letters chronologically, that, that sounds like a a really fascinating insight. And I I look forward to walking that journey in her footsteps. So thank you again for the great work that you and your team are doing. Yeah. Uh, Can I, can I give a a closing word of encouragement to, to, uh, to your
1: listeners and, and, Steve, thank you again for, uh, for having, uh, having us uh, on your show. And I think your show is about hard things, right? And it is. what we've learned in our research is, especially people of faith, there's a lot of shame out there because mm-hmm. people have cried and they've failed. And a while back, we were invited to do a, a three-part series on a podcast, and they asked us to give it a title. Our title for the three-week series was Bible Reading is Broken and It's Not Your Fault. Hmm. We heard later on that the listenership for that was greater than almost any guest that they've had. And, you know, we're hardly household names. These were superstars. But it tells me that something is resonating deeply in people.
0: Yeah.
1: That the survey that nine out of 10 people said, please, please help me understand the Bible in depth, that that cry is, is real. And I think the Spirit has heard us, and our, our, our testimony is that when churches do this, when small groups do this, the Spirit is honored, and the Spirit seems to be meeting people halfway. That's
0: awesome. Well, thanks again for your great work, Paul. We look forward to talking to you again sometime in the not so distant future. Good. Thanks, Steve. All right. God bless. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.